Dr. Jordan Peterson, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to finally speak with you. I've been following your videos very closely over the last little while. And uh, part of the reason I wanted to speak to you was to get, uh, to, to look the gift horse in the mouth, if you will. Um, and in particular, I'd like to figure out a way that I could speak with you and show my fellow students at U of T uh, who you really are, what you, as a professor, not as a professor embroiled in some sort of contentious issue, but just as a professor teaching and doing what he does. So briefly, if I could, I'll just get a little glimpse of your academic background. You studied, you, you did your undergrad where exactly? Well, I, I took my first two years at a small college in northern Alberta called Grand Prairie Regional College, which was a very good place to go to school because the first and second year classes were small. I, I think most of my classes certainly were under 30 and some of them were seven or eight people. So I had seminars right from the beginning. Yeah, that was really good. And then I went to the University of Alberta. You could get a three-year degree at that time, and I got a three-year degree specializing in political science and literature. And then I took a year off to work and to travel. And then I came back to university and did a full year of nothing but psychology courses, and that gave me, that upgraded my degree, so to speak, to psychology. Right. And then I worked for another year as a consultant uh, for Alberta Social Services in the daycare department formulating policy and then I went to McGill and did my PhD in clinical psychology and then after that I worked as a postdoc at McGill and at the Douglas Hospital I was working on alcoholism and aggression at that point looking at the heritable transmission of of alcoholism because it runs in families especially among men and um, after that I went to Harvard for six years as an assistant and an associate professor right. and then I came to the University of Toronto in 1998. So then my follow-up question is, thank you, my follow-up question is what drew you to the U of T? Was it something specific? A particular well, junction in your life? Well I really liked being in Boston. Uh, we, we, my, my daughter, who's now 25, was born in Montreal but she grew up in Boston, you know, and I had my son in Boston, um, and we were well ensconced. When you have little kids in a place, it becomes home very rapidly. But at the Ivy League schools, <clears throat> the junior positions, so that would be assistant and associate professor positions, aren't tenured, and there's a reason for that. Like Harvard is a very small school, only has about five thousand undergraduates, right, and so they tend to hire permanent faculty from among older people, maybe in their late 40s, mid 50s, something like that, who are sort of at the peak of their career. That constitutes the permanent faculty. Right. And then they rotate junior faculty on about a five to six year basis. You can stay eight years, but it's a bit risky. You price yourself out of the market if you do that. And that gives the students the advantage of having people who are really at the top of their field and enthusiastic young people who are just developing their career. It also gives those young people a chance to teach at a prestigious institution, but the price they pay for that is that it's not tenure track, it's not permanent. And so generally what happens is that people in those positions start to look for alternative work in about their fifth or sixth year, and that's what I did, and the position came up at the University of Toronto. and. Well, it, it was tailor-made for what I was doing, and right. um, 
you know, there was some attraction to moving back to Canada. Um, and so I applied for the job and got it. And so that was that. There you are. Okay. Now, my next question is, uh, is uh, re- regards one of the things you mentioned in the, in the podcast you did with Joe Rogan, and specifically something that has lingered with me. And actually, when I watched it, I must admit, my jaw dropped and I smiled because I hadn't thought of it. And it's so it's so blatant was the the hero mythology in Harry Potter mm-hmm. and how and how uh, how brilliantly as you put it JK Rowling is able to just retell a classic story so my question was and I was formulating it on the way here is what is it about about, about the human mind I suppose that draws us to particular stories w- what is its function and and why is it so necessary and then after that if you could tell me how dangerous stories can be if used the wrong way, if um, if weaponized, if you mm-hmm. will. Well, because that that fascinated me. I mean, <clears throat> the first question is whether you regard human beings as creatures that have a nature or not, and blank slate theorists don't, and that would include all the social constructionists who believe that a human being is anything you want him or her to be. Um, that's a very dangerous presupposition because it makes the person um, what a construction of the state. And one of the presumptions of radical political ideologues <clears throat> is that you can turn people into anything that you want them to be, so you can turn them into what you think they should be. Right. Well, the thing about people is that we have a biological form, and that's the consequence of three and a half billion years of evolution and that form has continuity with every other living creature all the way down the phylogenetic chain right Right. down to one-celled animals tremendous continuity uh, neurochemically structurally functionally at at every level of analysis Uh, each creature has its own niche so to speak and we occupy a very particular niche, and it's some people have called it the cognitive niche, but I think that's a bit narrow. Um, we we have a particular mode of being in the world, and we need need to know what that is because the big question for human beings, apart from what is, which is the scientific question, is what should be. How ought we to conduct ourselves in the world? How ought we to act? And it's a it's perhaps the biggest question of all. It's the question that people always ask themselves. It's the question of value. Mm. Now, <clears throat> given that we have a nature, we're oriented to some things and not to others. We find some things intrinsically meaningful and rewarding and not other things, obviously. Mm-hmm. We, right. I mean, the social constructionist, the, the, the problem with the social constructionist view can be laid out quite clearly if you think about pain. Um, Pain. Pain, yes. I mean, pain's built in, so is anxiety. Right. And you you can't be convinced in any real way out of what causes you pain, no matter how intense the socialization. I mean, you can socialize people very intensely, obviously. We're quite programmable, but it's still within parameters. I mean, things hurt people, and that's an indication that of our central nature. Things make people anxious. Things make people jealous things make people angry and all of those capabilities are built into us they're part of our biological structure 
and they express themselves in certain modes of being. <clears throat> an angry mode of being, a frightened mode of being, a jealous mode of being. The stories explore those, each of those different modes of being, and provide cautionary tales and tales for emulation, right? Cautionary tale is what happens, for example, if someone is possessed by jealousy and that augurs them in and, and ends their existence in some terrible catastrophe, murder or, or crime or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, a story for emulation would show a, a person coping with that properly. And, and of course that begs the question, what constitutes properly? Yeah, right. Well, so properly is something like <clears throat> a balance of all these forces, maybe the forces that Freud described as rooted in the id. And the balance also has a nature. So, and, and the nature of that balance has been described in emergent stories over thousands and thousands and thousands of years as human beings have sorted out how to orient themselves in the world given their nature and given also the fact of their social being. So here's a, a good example might be, and, and this is derived partly from the thinking of Jean Piaget, because Piaget was very interested in how morality, which is obviously the field of behavioral ethics, something like that, how that mm. developed among children. And he was very interested in the emergence of morality from the, from the proclivity of children to play games, mm -hmm. cooperative and competitive games simultaneously. So imagine that any game is a value system because there's a name. And that's innate. It's not something taught. Children play. Children play. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they also aim. They aim with their eyes. Mm -hmm. They aim with their hands. Like they're always aiming at something. They're always going from one place to another. Physically, you mean literally? Literally, literally, all the time. Well, part of the reason we watch each other's eyes is to see where the other person is aiming. Right. Right. So, because you watch the things of interest to you, and you're pursuing the things that are interesting, and so yeah, yeah, this is deeply, deeply rooted. In fact, the reason that you have white sclera around your iris, at least in principle, is so that other people can see where you point your eyes. Mm. It's not something that's characteristic of, we're great apes. It's not something that's characteristic of the other great apes. So we really want to know where people, what their point is. What's your point? Well, I can tell by looking at your eyes. And children are very, very good at that sort of thing. They pick that up right away. Right. And they, they get pointing, right? Dogs children, can yes. kind of, yeah, dogs can understand pointing a little bit. But children understand pointing right away, which is a proto-linguistic gesture to point at something it's very strange, like, what am I pointing at? The chair. Right. Well, you can tell that, even though there's any number of things there that I might, I might be pointing at a wrinkle in the chair, I might be pointing at a color in the chair. You know perfectly well I'm pointing at a chair, because, well, because we share a set of underlying assumptions. Mm -hmm. Anyways, so children spontaneously organize themselves into games, pretend games, and then games with rules, and it's part of childhood culture, and adults participate in it, but and then you might say, well, what's the point of the game? And the point of the game is to win, but not exactly. The point of the game is to win in a manner that ensures that you'll be invited to play another game. Right. Right. That's, right. that's very different. Yeah. That's very different. And you might say that the victory that you're trying to attain is the possibility of playing as many games with as many people as possible. And that means that you have to try to win each game, but not in a manner that um, makes you an undesirable play partner for the future. Mm -hmm. Well, so it's out of that that a sense of morality emerges uh, fundamentally. 
It's it's games repeated across time, and right. the fact that they're repeated across time makes them different than something that you would just play once. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a good a good player is the person who's invited to play many games. Okay, so you can think about that as one source of hero mythology. So the hero is the person who's invited to play great sequences of games continually. And so, right, right, right. so, and you see that's, that's part of Hercules is 12 tasks. Sure, it's numbered. sure, yeah. sure, sure. And then there's, it's more complex than that because Certainly. when you're, what you're doing when you're playing a game is twofold. Apart from the fact that you want to be invited back to play many games, you're you're trying to do what's necessary to win the game, but you're trying to do what you need to do to expand your skill set while you're playing the game so that you're better at playing future games. Mm-hmm. Right. So you don't just you don't rest on your laurels even if you're a good player. You you constantly try to push yourself to the edge, let's say, where you're developing more differentiated representations and a higher level of skill. Well, that's that's the same as the hero going out into the unknown to discover something new, mm-hmm. and that's a really old idea. And and it seems to have, it seems to be a consequence of the fact that human beings are or were both predators and prey animals. So that's a unique. Uh... Well, there's other animals that are like that. I mean. You know, like small house cats are like that. They could be preyed upon, yeah, but sure. they're also so it 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 doesn't characterize grizzly bears. You know, nothing eats them. <laughs> so, but we're 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 both prey and predator. And so, what that means is that we have reason to be wary of the unknown because it might eat us. But we have reason to go out and explore because it might be of benefit to us. And that's symbolized in the idea that that. The hero goes out to face, generally face something that approx- approximates a dragon. A dragon is a very strange creature. It's a monster, and it's composed of features of predators, roughly speaking, snake-like, bird-like. So that would be birds of prey, mm-hmm. um, and predator animals like cats. It's an amalgam of those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. You might say, well, there's no such thing as a dragon, but that's silly it's an abstract category and it, it's a it's the category of things that lurk in the unknown okay so what should you do with things that lurk in the unknown one answer is hide another answer is approach voluntarily and see what you can accomplish well that's basically a hero myth it's how do you approach the terrible unknown and gather what's useful and necessary as a consequence and that's the fundamental question of human beings and so it's built it's built deeply into us yeah i find it i i i find it hard to believe that a jk rowling or um or or well, perhaps tolkien certainly they were brilliant especially tolkien um but i i doubt they had that uh, a conscious understanding well, of the human side. Well, it depends on what you mean by conscious. In the sense that the way you are able to delineate and explain these things to me and, and, and break it down to yeah. these components, I don't know if a, if a Tolkien or a Steinbeck, when he wrote East of Eden, could accurately pinpoint the different these different ingredients. I'm, which which no, is what prompted no, me to... No, no, no. It's, 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 look, so that, uh, it's that's inborn. true. It comes well, out by accident? It, well, it's partly that. It's, it's more complicated than that. It, it resonates because of our nature. But the ideas are distributed throughout the culture. So, for example, 
I had a nephew at one point who was wandering around when he was about four or five as a knight and he was having night terrors and he had a dream about a dragon and you might say well and he, that he conquered and and uh, well he had a dream about a dragon that was pursuing him he didn't figure out how to conquer it until he talked about the dream but see he'd already been exposed to a very large number of stories you might say well there's there's something that makes a story a story all right then imagine that you have a set of stories and what you extract from that is what makes each of those a story so it's the common features across stories sure well that's what a that's what the hero myth is it's what's common across sets of stories right okay. now you might say well do people know that so like Steinbeck for example well it depends on what you mean by no because there's different levels of knowing there's the acting out level and you could think about that as procedural mm -hmm. and sure. the acting out level knowledge occurs when you see someone doing something that you admire and want to do it yourself you might not be able to know why you admire it but there's a compulsion for imitation okay right and that's to look up to someone right it's to yes. look up to them is to to look up is a to, role model. yes a role model well and the role is your action and so that'll possess you without your voluntary participation in some sense and it happens with children all the time they look up to kids sure. often that are older than them their next behavioral target and that's a consequence of their ability to imitate okay so that's one level of knowing another level of knowing is to have it encapsulated in a story or image like a dream and that's where novelists work especially well not only primarily people who write fiction but to some degree people who write non-fiction too because they tend to mythologize that that's how you tell a story is you mythologize mm -hmm. something you put it into a narrative frame and so knowledge in image is another form of knowledge and so for example when people make animated movies uh, like let's say like the Lord of the Rings or, or well that wasn't animated but you get the picture right um, or, a, or a movie like Pinocchio or or any of the great Disney classics you might ask well did the animators know what they are doing and the answer to that is well it depends on what you mean by no <laughs> they could represent it in image they could tell collectively that what they were weaving together was a good story so their knowledge extended to what constant what manifested itself as a good story but they didn't necessarily know why it was a good story or mm -hmm. what the story represented when it's fully articulated, right? Okay, that's okay. that's the question: is does does it does an author like that, like a like a Rowling or a Tolkien, is is no. he or she able to pinpoint it? You're, you're telling me sometimes yes, I suppose, and sometimes no. That's well, what, to, yeah. Well, I would say see if they pinpointed it to begin with and then write the story to illustrate their point, then they're writing propaganda. Okay, right. You you want it to emerge from the procedural level upward through the imagistic level up to the articulated level because then there's something real about it so because you can't just tell the same story over and over again right mm -hmm. there has to be something new and revelatory about it and a good storyteller is very good at that Rowling did a very good job of that which is why her material was so incredibly popular you know she put a new twist on it now to what degree did she know what she was doing well the idea that she understood say that the especially in the second volume of Harry Potter where he goes after the basilisk and she knew the corpus of stories that are like that because there's a tremendous number of them she understood the plot how much she understood about why she used the um, the uh, phoenix to revivify Harry Potter 
that's a good question. I don't know. Um, the Phoenix Tears revivified Potter, and so that's the right. Phoenix is a symbol of death and rebirth, right? It's a re it's a re it's a resurrection symbol, and she of course ends the entire series with a resurrection because Potter dies and then comes back, right? right? So it's a you know there's a there's a you could call it a Christian metaphor buried in there, but it's pretty explicit if if you're looking for it, I believe. It's, yeah, it's, but yeah, but it's also a motif that predates Christianity. Mm-hmm. So so, um, but nonetheless, it, it it's it is the it is the answer to the problem she solved. It's to the problem she posed, which is what do you do in the face of ultimate evil? And the answer is something like you die and become reborn. Now you know. You might ask, what does that mean? Well, it's very, very, very complicated. Okay. I mean, it means in part that if you encounter evil within yourself, then you have to let that part of you die and be reborn as something else. And that can be a partial death and rebirth, or it can be something that's almost complete, almost comprehensive. And and, and if I remember correctly, <clears throat> Harry undergoes both because there's a piece of um, of Voldemort in him. Right. There's the piece of that evil in his soul. Right. That has to be killed. But there's also the total death. He yeah. act, all of him dies right. and he comes back. And when he comes back, you'll notice that that piece of him that was once part of Voldemort is is also gone. Right. So he's not the same person. Right. I, and you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I had to... Uh, let me ask, because I want to make sure I'm following along. One of the best courses... I'll make it brief. One of the best courses I've, I took... I'm in third year. One yeah. of the best courses I took was uh, Professor Will Robbins' uh, oh, yeah. literary tradition. Yeah. He begins with Gilgamesh, and he ends with Alice Munro's short stories on, on Avenue Road. Yeah. Gilgamesh um, posed a problem for me, or not a problem, but it was a very unique quandary I, I, I stumbled upon, because you realize that a lot of these metaphors, uh, excuse me, not metaphors, motifs that you hold so dear, or, or at least you're aware of, aren't unique to your own time. Uh-huh. Certainly they manifest themselves differently across the ages, as you put it. They, they, every era is different. But there's so much in Gilgamesh you could find in the Bible, the flood, Gilgamesh going to sure. the unknown, yeah. coming back, etc. So... Am I following right? Am I? Am I? On? I, I wanted to. Yeah, make well, they're sure human stories. I mean, and that's why you can still read Gilgamesh. You can still read Gilgamesh, although it's somewhat difficult because the context is different. But it's still it's thousands of years later, and you still understand it's still a story. Well, why? It's because well, you're still a human being, and there are things about human beings that are central <clears throat> to our nature, and so it, it's not as simple as them being biologically inherited. It's more like a biological propensity, like mm. like the propensity to learn to speak a language. That that that's the right like is language innate in human beings? Well yes, but you need a social context to shape that and and flesh it out. Well, the proclivity to understand certain kinds of stories is deeply rooted inside human beings. It's part of our nature, but you need the social context to flesh that out. And so it's form meets content, roughly speaking, and you you need to know these stories because they they ground you in 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 reality in a way that you can't be grounded by any other means. It's very helpful to pe- for people to know, for example, that there's an underworld domain of chaos because everyone's going to visit it, and everyone needs to know what to do when they get there, and they don't. They don't even know that it exists as a, as a domain. Like As soon as I talk to people about chaos and order and explain what it means, everyone gets it. Order is when 
You're somewhere where things are going according to plan. And chaos is when that falls apart. And those are different places. Like they really, it's not a metaphor even. They really are different places. Mm. So if someone leapt in here, you know, raving and had a knife, this would not be the same room. It's seriously not the same room. It's a different place. And that's because time can transform a place into something new immediately, yes. And you need to know that there are these different domains, order and chaos, and you need to know how to balance the two. You have to know that. And having the conceptual tools to do that is very helpful to people. I can imagine. I mean, otherwise you're you're stumbling around blindly, unaware of why your life may be going well or not. And at the very least, if you can't control the, the fates, if you will, you can... At least, under, uh, it gives you a framework with which to understand. Yeah, well, the hero, the hero myth is the best, your best shot. It, it, the thing about these mythologies is that, in some sense, they don't provide what you might describe as a, as a certain solution because it isn't obvious there. There are certain solutions to life's problems, mm-hmm. uh, but they provide you with what's your best option fundamentally. Now, I've had. I, I, I met two soldiers, returned soldiers from Afghanistan last month on separate, same day but separately, and had two write to me. They'd been watching the videos I was making about chaos and order, roughly speaking, and about the encounter with evil. And they all had post-traumatic stress disorder, right? They would know the encounter they, they, with good They evil. know, that's right, they know, and it blew them apart. And they all four of them told me the same thing, which was that watching the lectures had helped them come out of their post-traumatic stress disorder because, first of all, they understood what had happened to them. You know, they, they went somewhere very chaotic and got a glimpse of, of malevolence. And that's very hard on people. That's why in, in the Egyptian story of Horus and Osiris and Seth, Seth is the evil god, roughly equivalent to Satan, Horus encounters him voluntarily because he can see Horus is the god of attention. The great eye. The great eye, yes. Well, that's the eye that is torn out by Seth. So even Horus, who's a god and the god of vision, is damaged when he encounters true malevolence. Wow. Right, right. And the way he recovers from that, in part, is he goes to the underworld to rescue his father and gives his father an eye so his father can see. And so there's an idea there that the Egyptians were working out they didn't know it consciously, they didn't fully articulate it, it was represented in image, Mm -hmm. that you have to unite yourself with your culture in order to withstand the, in order to withstand the knowledge of evil, roughly speaking. There has to be more to you than just you. You have to be situated in the proper cultural context, and that's the, the uh, rescuing the father from the underworld, which is what you should be doing in university. That's really what university is for.